Welcome back, everybody, to the Uncensored CMO. And on this episode, I have got a very special guest who is perhaps the most frequently requested guest on the show. It is none other than the godfather of effectiveness himself, Mr. Peter Fields. One half, of course, of the dynamic duo of Peter and Les, which I'm sure you'll be familiar with. And on this episode, I'm delighted to be talking to Peter all about the evidence for what makes marketing work. Peter has studied this for a very long time. In fact, he started out in agency world, but after getting fired twice, uh, something I can relate to, he ended up going solo and has dedicated himself to studying what works in marketing and has written a number of very, very important papers on the subject. Not least, of course, the long and the short of it, which uh, we will get into. But we cover much, much more than that, including what happens when you go dark in a recession and also why we should be paying attention to attention because in fact it's no longer good enough just to be buying share of voice we need to start thinking about share of attention and of course if you listen to my episode with James Herman I could not resist asking Peter his view on creativity and can lions and uh, whether we have become obsessed with short term there's a lot in this episode Peter as ever is uh, very much to the point and on the evidence and is his usual great self so I'm really pleased to introduce you to Mr Peter Fields thanks John lovely to be with you well, well let me start with the godfather effect when did that start to become a, a phrase used of you lovingly of um, course but is that is that a recent thing Difficult, fairly recent, about, I think about five or six years ago. I don't remember a particular uh, point. Um, I first heard it while I was speaking in Australia. So I don't know whether the Australians coined uh, it or not, but it, it popped up from somewhere at some point about there. Well, we, we, we know the Australians love their effectiveness, don't they? You know, the home of Ritson and Sharp and, and, and others too. So uh, they, they pack they, a powerful punch in they so do, many they, ways, and certainly effectiveness is one of them. Yeah. They certainly do, don't they? Well, listen, just before we get into uh, all the many topics I'd love to get your thoughts on, tell us briefly your journey to this point. Where did it start for you and how did you end up doing what you do today? Oh, gosh. Well, I mean, for 15 or 16 years, I was um, a strategic planner. I started out at BMP where I worked with Adam Morgan. So Adam's my oldest and first friend in the world of advertising and marketing. Um, we were both trainees together, worked at a, four different agencies, Got fired from two of them, realised I'd outgrown the business. You got fired from two? Oh, oh I like it. I've met yeah. someone else. Yeah. I, I've been fired twice and, and, and I wear it as a badge of honour. badge so, of honour. <laughs> it's good to a fellow alumni from the fired twice. Club. Uh, absolutely. <laughs> but I mean, it, it teaches you to kind of think about what you really want and where you want to go. And I, I'd anyway been thinking for some years that um, I really wanted to do my own thing. I, you know, I kind of like to be my own boss. So I was absolutely ready to hit the ground running when um, I finally um, had my last <laughs> termination deal and that was 25 26 years ago now and have loved it ever since so you know and I think it also teaches you that you need to think about you know what you're going to be you know, self-employed it's it's a very it's potentially a very lonely a very naked kind of state to be in and so you have to have a, a thought about what you want to be how you want to make your name and from the word go I'd known very well that it was going to be about a kind of evidence-based approach to to strategy and to marketing and I'd already for a number of years prior to that point been working with the IPA database I helped set it up in the first place you know I interviewed the great and the good at the time who gave me advice 
advice, people like Simon Broadbent on you know what it should look like and what we should capture. So I've been working for years building this damn database. And you know, finally, you know, this was a good opportunity to weave that into kind of my product, which which was you know going to be evidence-based. And and I've just built that over the years, really. I work with lots of different evidence bases now and pull in findings from here there and everywhere um, but the thing that glues it all together is to say look let's you know, let's pay our respects to knowledge and learning and you know read the case studies read the evidence wherever it comes from and kind of build it into into our thinking and, and you mentioned the ipa then of course there's so much rich data, isn't there, you know, sat in the IPA about what works and what's been successful over time. And, and, and perhaps what uh, was well, certainly where you came to my attention was the, the long and the short of it, of course. So what 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 preceded that? What was the reason for looking at uh, the long and the short of it? And how did that publication come about? Oh, well, we'd obviously, Les and I had obviously written our first piece, which was marketing the year of accountability, I think about 2007 or something, some years before that. And, you know, that had been a kind of kind of quasi-academic deep trawl into the data. And something that had begun to emerge from that was some suggestions about short and long. We didn't explore it. We didn't have enough data at the time, but we realised there was an issue there that we hadn't really thought about. And then in 2011, although it was sort of kind of after the real kind of big data beginning but it the whole issue of short-term effects short-term metrics and the you know we want it now kind of um, uh, line of thinking in marketing was beginning to gain ascendancy then and we realized that this was becoming a big big issue so we knew there was an issue we knew there was a trend that was going to exacerbate that issue so we thought well look this is the obvious central theme for the next work which was to see you know the extent to which that was true how it played out why it why it was the way it was you know once we got the theme it was it was a in many ways a very easy piece of work to pull together because um, we were very focused on that and there was a huge huge problem to explore little did we know when mm. we were writing it that things were going to get a whole lot worse in the years to come <laughs> yes and for the first few years i think we were kind of shouting into the void on that one i don't think anyone had really recognized the importance of, of what we were saying. Um, nobody had seen that there was a problem there or looming. Everyone felt, you know, that things were still great. And it's only subsequently, I think, that people have realised, you know, that there is one hell of a problem in marketing based on short-term thinking. And, uh, you know, in many ways, we'd sort of foretold it. Though, um, we weren't trying to be prophets. We were just trying to observe something that was going on there and then. But... But yeah, no, it was a it was a looming and obvious problem, and it was an easy one to, to run with. No, it's great, and it's really sticky as a concept as well, isn't it? And I know, you know, having been client side as my, you know, for almost the entirety of my career. I, I found it incredibly helpful to have those kind of budgetary conversations and to try and explain the role of marketing activity that may go beyond the current quarter that you're trying to hit, particularly if you're in a PLC where you're reporting quarterly profits. And it was a tremendously powerful concept to explain to people why it's important to, to grow the long as well as the short. Just for the benefit of anyone who's not as familiar with it, can you give me the key headlines in terms of mix of spend and, and, and how the, I know there's the famous famous chart of course that is oft quoted the famous but, um, sorted me, chart that yes. has been adapted the sorted, and modified yes. by so many people in so many ways 
Well, you, you know when you know when you're doing something right when people start to adapt it, copy it, you know, and, and try and improve on it. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. but yeah, explain explain the concept of that for so anyone that, the, the, that may be less. The familiar. basic concept is that there are two very different models for driving driving business effects. The, that which happens in the short term and that which happens in the long term, they are lead you in totally different directions. They are very very different kinds of effects, and the best approaches to achieve each of those are very very different. So classically, short term, what we're talking about are promotional or you know kind of classic data led nudges that make us do something now. You know, data trail tells someone that we are researching washing machines, so we serve a whole load of advertising messages to say this is our deal. This is our offer it's a reminder and we will act on that there and then or probably never these are very short-term messages pieces of information or reminders that will get us to do it there and then and of course that has its has its value it's particularly um, had its value in in the digital era because our ability to 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 serve those kinds of messages in a timely and relevant manner are has been hugely mm. improved but the other the other framework is, is long-term brand-led growth. This is the creation of associations in people's minds with that brand that make them want to buy it ever more over time. They create these system one effects, which you will be very, very familiar mm. with, that, yeah. are, that are about getting it in our heads, uh, mental availability, you could call it, but also um, a feeling of closeness, you know, a, a sense that this is a no-brainer for me. I don't even have to think about mm. it. And that comes from the power of the brand. Power of brand takes time to build. You know, you don't build brands overnight. You have to create and reinforce these associations over time through um, the kinds of messages that do that best, which we know are emotional ones. You know better than anyone are emotional ones. Yeah. Because they accumulate yeah. over time. They're, they're memorable as well as being highly, highly persuasive in their way. So, but that works over the long term, over over a year or years, and very powerful brand building messages as we know people remember for in some cases decades even so mm. you know very different very different time frames and we know that the cusp point at which those brand built associations start to take over as the dominant driver of growth is about six months assuming you even run the campaign that long so what we identified in long and short of it was there's this huge huge danger because even then, the, market, the world of business was heavily, heavily moved towards quarterly reporting. But of course, also overlaid on that were all those digital metrics, which are often more or less instantaneous. And if you measure the response to your activity in that very short term, all you ever end up doing is the short-term piece. You do the mm. kinds of communications, these promotional, you know, informational reminder nudges. That's all you do because in that very short-term period, they will give you the biggest visible response. Whereas the brand building mm. piece is going to take longer, but, but ultimately will be much, much more powerful. So, you know, the piece is all about how the window in which you measure effectiveness is absolutely vital because it changes everything if you want to go long term you want to go emotional you want audio visual you want broad reach you want a completely different communications and media brief than if you're going short term which is all about tight targeting key bits of information and doesn't even particularly need to be audio visual media you just want cheap you want the cheapest means you yeah. can of serving those messages they are so totally different worlds and of course they have to work together which to finally wrap on your question is what led us to the 60 40 ratio yes and it was an observation yeah. that les made first that you know the media world had 
in the decades up to 2011, there'd be many changes, you know, media ascended and media descended. But if you group them into those that were more about brands and those that were more about direct response, they'd curiously continue to level out at sort of a 60-40 ratio. So what we did with the database then was to say, well, is this enshrined in effectiveness? Is, is this just the market instinctively discovering that, that kind of ratio is right? And and when we looked at the database and started looking at the, the ratio of brand, at the time we did it through media, and now we do it through actually how the media is planned, you know, the, the purposes to which they're put. And those days we did it through, through the proxy of media. You know, what we found was that the sweet spot for brands was around about 60-40. So yes, the market had learned, if you like, through trial and error over many years that you need to do both and that it's important to spend a bit more money on brand building than it is on the short-term activation piece you know that's really really helpful that 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 data point i think is so helpful to so many marketers does out of interest does that change if for example you're a debt direct consumer where you don't have the benefit of shops and physical presence and 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 you need to drive people to because i guess the assumption would be D to C relies all on performance marketing, but but it, what, have you seen any differences with it's, kind of, of course, different business models? As in so many things, it's precisely the reverse is true. But, you know, yeah. in D to C, particularly once you get to scale, brand building becomes even more important than than the the performance marketing piece. And I think it's quite interesting to 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 sort of just take a step back and understand why that is the case. I mean, if we if we think about the work of the Ehrenberg Bass Institution, of course, you know. We cannot not think about that unless we really want to risk being beaten up. But I mean, they have very, very sensibly for many years talked about the two vital things, which is physical and mental availability. Now, in the world, in the digital world, the two are becoming conflated because what we know is that you cannot afford increasing to drive people to your website only using performance marketing. It gets damn expensive, particularly when you get to scale. So they you know, your, your physical availability in a sense in the, in the digital world is also your mental availability because you're relying on people being driven to seek out and notice your performance marketing messages and or your, your website or your, your presence online. So the two become conflated. So mental availability is assuming an ever greater importance as the world goes more digital, but particularly for those D2C brands. And so those that ignore that, I think, ignore it at their peril and and tend to very rapidly discover Mm -hmm. that. And there's some good case studies in the IP database about this, that you have to pivot to brand. You have to start building that brand if you want to continue um, selling profitably in a, in a D2C way. And your performance marketing, of course, starts to perform massively better once you've got that brand, you know, kind of cover, that firepower behind you. It just makes everything hum much more perfectly. But again, the, the work that Les and I have done teaches us that those kinds of brands need to pivot more towards brands. So it's no longer 60, 40, it's more of a 70, 30 kind of rule for them. So well, I think that's that's so interesting because it's probably the opposite to what people would assume, totally. isn't it? So that, that's, that's quite that's quite a stark, quite a stark message. Because interesting, my career's been FMCG, and actually when you're launching a new brand, your physical availability drives some mental availability because you are seen in the shops and you know you've got the the, the point of purchase material and all that kind of thing. So you can go to a, you can go a certain distance 
you know, using, you know, using kind of activation to get you there, but obviously there's a limit to how mm-hmm. far you can go. And it just intrigued me that I think D to C, you might assume to be more like that, but actually it's the opposite, isn't it? Is yeah. that, you know, when you've got to, you've got to get a share of people's minds. Yeah. Well, I mean, as um, you know, when, you, they when you launch a new brand in the physical world, there's an enormous amount of work you have to do to get it into the distribution mm. world, sell it in. You know, you've got to do tons and tons of work to make sure that people can buy it. And I think the sort of slight arrogance of the online world was to imagine that, well, we've done away with all of that. There is, you know, we just yes. put it out there. People we're now buy. direct, aren't we? We're now, we're now yeah, we're avoiding exactly. them. Yeah. And, of, and of course, it's just not that easy. You know, you've, you've, you've got to substitute for that physical availability that was so hard to get in the first place, but so valuable for brands, which is why it was so yeah. hard to get. You, you know, you've got to substitute for that. And the substitute is the strength of your brand. Um, mm. Mm. One of the things I wanted to ask you about as well, because the, the, the long and the short of it, I think is so, so powerful. Because if, if I go to back in my career and the conversation I've had, because many businesses are, are, are orientated around quarterly results. Well, the longest time frame often is, is annual and people's individual bonuses, their, you know, share, you know, share payouts and everything are often based on, you know, dividend returns and so on. So what, what happens very often is, um, you know, when you're in a commercial organization, you're making decisions about yeah, how we're going to pay out to shareholders, how we're going to deliver the, the number we've committed to the city. And if you're always looking over that short time horizon, you get in this hamster wheel of maxing those short term. So, you know, I worked a long time at Britvic and it's like the decision was always made, let's do that promotion in Tesco because it's going to get us to the number for the next quarter. And then, of course, the next quarter, you're lapping the previous one and you're going to have to double down. Let's go Tesco and Sainsbury's. And, and, very, and what I saw every single year happen was the, the brand investment just as a percentage of revenue just went gradually down and down and down as you know the profit targets went up and up and up and it was very hard to get out of that cycle and that's what when I first became familiar with your work I thought was so powerful is starting to put the evidence base together you know to, to have those conversations to say well it's not about our profit today it's about our profit tomorrow and and what is good for shareholders in the long run would take you to a different decision today than if you're just looking at you know, kind of giving back dividends today. But I wanted to ask you, because obviously you're very well known in the planning world. Do you do you have many conversations with, you know, kind of board level client side as well? Because it strikes me that it, it's a very important message to get out to to that audience who are making the sort of financial decisions about where investments are made. I mean, almost all the work I do is client side these days. I mean, I, I, mm. I very, very rarely um, have dealings with ad agencies, sadly. And when I do, it's actually usually media agencies who I think are more kind oh, of on the pace yeah. when it comes to many of the issues yeah. that, that we're talking about. And I think have, have often in many cases taken over the kinds of influence roles that account planners once once had, which is very sad to me mm. as an ex-planner. So yeah, it, it's all client side. I do an enormous amount of work convincing particularly finance um, departments of the importance of brand building. You know, uh, very did one just only, only a week or so back, American organization, where again it was a you know meeting of marketing and finance, the whole team were on the piece and it was an evidence-based argument to say look this is this is the way forward this is the way you have to do it and I've always found that you know with finance people they're, they're smart but why why should we expect them to know anything very much about marketing yes. their backgrounds are not in that 
you know, in that direction. But if you put an evidence-based argument to them and give them, you know, give them the data and give them the examples that illustrate, no, you it can is, convince them. Absolutely. You can convince them. They're not, I mean, yeah. they're not idiots. They just, you know, they wouldn't instinctively know this. You've got to, you've got to, you've got to share it with them. You're so right. And again, you're talking their language, you're helping them prove the return on investment of, of, of you know what they're signing off and in fact the best conversations i have you know in terms of your work is actually with cfos ccos or ceos because you know you, you're connecting back to business results and that's what marketers are here to do and something i'm always encouraging you know, marketing teams i've ever worked with to do is is you know demonstrate the contribution that your advertising your campaigns make to the future success of the business and you'll always be heard you'll always be listened to and you'll always be rewarded you know it's when we get sidetracked by in-campaign metrics which mm. are, um, are slightly more vanity that that's where things that's where you start to get the kind of challenges and questions from you know from the board but i do sometimes suspect that the pressures that cfos sometimes feel they're they're under to perform now and not worry about next year are some sometimes overplayed in companies because you know the investment world fully gets it with the tech businesses they know damn well these a lot of these companies ah. are not making no money now but it's a it's a bet on the future profitability of those companies and that they will get there well you know, that's it through the brand that's that they it. build so there is there is that understanding in the investment community about the importance of the long-term play and having a clear direction to to strength so you know, I would have thought that um, a savvy business that had got its got its shit together there could put a powerful argument to investors to say, "Look, you know, we're not going to we're not just going to promise you now because we're on a long term journey here, and this is the way we're going to play it." You know, yeah. I think do, do, do you know what, in my experience, in my experience, actually, you, you're hundred percent right. So, when, when, if you go to the CFO, they're very concerned about demonstrating they're going to deliver what they said they would do. We set this budget. We've got to deliver it. We've got an honor, honor the dividends, shareholders, et cetera. Once you go to the CEO, slots to get a longer term view. But once you go to non-execs and chairmans, they're taking a massively different, you know, much, much longer view in terms of how's my investment going to play over the long run. And, and that, that, that's where, so, so strangely, I, I find the message gets even, you know, more welcome the higher up you go. Yeah, that makes a lot yeah. of sense. No, for sure. Yeah, I wanted to ask you. So another another kind of concept that you made famous, which I wanted to to, to, to kind of explore or explore with you, was the concepts of ESOV, of course, which was another another idea which um, is very helpful when kind of planning and demonstrating the return on media investment. Where did where did the ESOV model came from? Can you describe it briefly for those that maybe aren't familiar and and how it how it can predict? Okay, so this is in in total honesty and this is not something that Les and I invented. John Philip Jones is the is the man who should take credit for this. He did the founding work on that in the 90s um, 1990s. Essentially what it what it teaches us is that what matters is not absolute levels of spend, not even particularly your share of voice, which is your share of category expenditure on advertising amongst all your competitors. It is the difference between that and your share of market. That is what ESOV is, extra share of voice. So what drives growth is when your share of voice is bigger than your share of market. And of course, if it's smaller, the reverse is true, you'll decline, all things being equal, which of course they, they mm. aren't, but it's a it's a kind of norm, a good a good norm against which to plan. So you know when when clients ask, as they often do, well, you know, what 
kind of budget should I put behind this? I mean, in a sense, the answer is quite simple. Take, look at your share of market, look at your share of market aspirations, and then set your share of voice based on that, depending on what you think the market is going to spend. So, okay, so there's a few um, fingers in the wind to do it. It's not a precise science, but at least it gives you a robust and empirically proven model. And of course, the amount of growth you drive will depend on the difference between share of voice and share of market, as well as the strength of your advertising and, of course, the nature of the category. Some categories are more elastic in that sense than others. Mm. Durables, for instance, um, financial services, you'll tend to get a bigger bigger bang for your, your share of voice buck than you will in, say, for FMCG. But you know, these, these kinds of things, variables are, are all pretty reasonably well known now. And so you can begin to put some numbers to it. But it's, it's a very simple rule and relationship. Of course, uh, there are some other nuances on it, which is it's an unfair world, as, as Adam Morgan at Challenge, with his Challenger brand work has observed many times over the years. And what we know is that the curve flattens out so that the bigger the brand you are you can actually get away with a share of voice that's lower than your share of market and still hold your own uh, or even grow so the brands that have to overspend in terms of ESOV our share of voice relative share of market are the small brands are the ones who can least afford it you know which is which is why it's so tough for new entrants to break into markets because all the odds are stacked against them and it's also why that challenger brand thinking that Adam has, has championed for so mm. many years is so vitally important to brands in that situation because your pockets are likely to be less well less well filled than the big, big brand so you've got to make damn sure that your advertising and marketing is working a lot harder and about 10 years or so I did some work with with Nielsen and we looked at the difference between the IPA data and the Nielsen data and what what we showed in doing that was that a typical brand leader has an advantage of something like three times you know for every for every dollar euro it spends it is likely to get something like three times the return on it because of economies of scale so that's brand leader versus the numbers two three four in the category typically so that's what you've got to that's what you've got to upend and you're not going to be able to do it by spending three or four times as much as they are because you haven't got that in your in your pocket you're gonna to have to make damn sure that your your marketing is three or four times as effective so you've got to be doing something different and better and you can't just you know you can't just copy the brand leaders i think a lot of people think they should do and there's a grave danger in just saying look as a small brand, we just follow category norms, you know, because you've got to do it better. And this is where I think mm. if I do occasionally diverge from the world of Aaron Bobas, it's in precisely that area, because I don't think it's very helpful to a small young brand just to say, well, look, let's observe what are the central rules of growth because you've got to do them better you've got to understand how to make those rules work even harder for you and if rule number one of branding is get your logo on screen well i'm sorry but we can all do that you've got to make the branding live <laughs> in some way you know and there are equivalents yeah. to almost everything you know communicating those category entry points you've got to do it on you know with volume turn to 11 you can't do it in any other way. So it's not good enough just to say you've got to do it. You've, you know, you've got to learn how to do it better. And that's where I think the study of, of excellence and effectiveness case studies and indeed all the kind of challenger success stories that, that Adam looks at is so valuable because you, you mm. really need to know this if you're going to 
overturn those odds against but, you. Well, it's, it's, it sort of reminds me of that classic challenger brand, Avis, of course, from back in the day. We're number two, so we try harder. And, and, and that's true, isn't it? You know, if you're number two, you have to, or number three or four, you have to try a lot harder. It, it actually reminded me of the, the work Mark Ritson did on the sort of top 10 contributors to effectiveness. And of course, number one was brand size. Now, of course, none of us can do anything about our brand size today. We can influence it tomorrow. Number two, which will link me nicely onto the next topic, is, of course, creativity. So creativity feels like a good place to invest if you're the challenger brand and you're not benefiting from that three times share of voice uh, tactic. I was going to mention as well, one of the things that Orlando's demonstrated really well over here at System One is looking at the correlation between media spend and market share, but also then overlaying the System One creative measure or the five-star system on top of that and, and to see how that, I think he calls it as an amplifier, doesn't he? Absolutely the, the, right. And the power yeah. of creative to amplify yeah. Yeah. The, the ESOV laws. And that's a very good way of looking at it. And that's exactly what, what we know. I mean, having great creative doesn't um, absolve you from the need to spend money behind it. In fact, you know, it, it strengthens the case for it. And you could argue, I mean, the data suggests that if you underspend behind creative work, you may do less well than if you'd um, been underspending behind rather more mundane work, because there is a kind of carrot and stick to it as well. So what we know, and all the work I've done with James Herman as well, on creative effectiveness all suggests that you need to commit adequately behind creativity mm. if you want to get the benefits of it. And that word commitment, I think, is also it's very important. But if you do that, the benefits are enormous. And you know, just coming back to that point I mentioned earlier, of, of, you know, brand leaders typically have three, three and a half maybe times have a scale advantage that equates to that kind of level of scale of advantage. The great thing about creativity is we know that it can give you an order of magnitude. It actually can give you 10 or more times the effectiveness for every pound, dollar or euro that you spend behind it over and above mundane work. So for once, there you have the single most powerful tool available to fight back against the economies of mm. scale that the big guys have. So, you know, it's it's totally vital, totally vital. It'll be probably your only real way of, of achieving success. So yeah. it's, you know, it's, it's, it's essential for, for, for challenges and new standards. I, I love this conversation. We had Adam on early in the season as well on the podcast to talk about it. But the, the great thing, of course, about challenges is that very often, you know, you're unencumbered by the, the rules of the category. You haven't got complicated infrastructures or ownership or commitments to shareholders, that sort of thing. So the opportunity to create great creative work and be brave and do something genuinely outstanding often it is easier in the challenger position because you haven't got the legacy. And um, now the flip side, of course, is the, established brands have got the distinctive assets and the memory structures already in place so of course you're trading those two things aren't you but uh, but definitely challenges out there should be thinking about how do they use their speed and uh, creativity to their advantage to create that multiple um listen great you mentioned james actually because um actually i had him on my podcast last week okay. that we're, we're, we're launching yeah which is wonderful we had a, we had a really good chat he, he and i came to blows slightly on a article i wrote recently on can lions which actually we might be a good point to bring this one in actually. yes yes so, I, um, saw, I saw i, 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 I think he <laughs> indeed i think he felt i think he felt that i was 
undermining the value and role of creativity, which wasn't my intention, but I think he he, he felt that. But let's let's go back to your crisis in creativity feature as well. In was it 2018, 2019? Uh, good, it was about 2018, I think. Yeah, yeah, just just early 2019. Yeah, yeah, it was, it was out of time. And, and I think. I th- and, and I think you demonstrated that historically the, the, the sort of a 10 or 11 multiplier for creatively award-winning work in terms of how it translates into effectiveness, if I've understood that right. But that has gradually been eroding over time. And I think what your article was saying was that it's now got to a point where creatively awarding work is no more or less effective than the average. Uh, absolutely. But, but absolutely. Can, can you? Yeah. 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 So it's one of the many astonishing alignments between the work, the data that I look at, and the work that Orlando has done on this, because he came to the same conclusion with, with his own work. What I, what I found was that over a kind of ten or twelve year period, that. Uh, what had once been a 12 to 1 advantage in terms of how hard highly creative work performed versus non-creative, non-awarded work, a 12 to 1 advantage had essentially withered away to pretty much zero on average. Now, of course, averages are dangerous, but that is, mm. you know, that, that is what I was looking at. It had withered and withered and withered. And in 2018, I stood up, or 2019, I stood up at Cannes and said, We've thrown it all away. And this you, you should worry about this, because if you can't show a financial benefit to creativity, then all those marketers that pitch up at Cannes every year wanting to you know, drink from the fount of wisdom there, we're going to go away because there's no benefit to us. You need to put this right. And the, you know, and the causes for it, in many ways, very simple, which is this obsession with short-termism. It's not just that per se, but it's how that plays out in terms of, mm. of other things, an obsession with digital, an obsession with the tools of short-term digital sales activation, promotional stuff. So, you know, I found when I was there that everyone was drooling over this Burger King promotional idea, which was around Halloween. No, it was a promotional it was a nice piece of film, but basically they were giving free burgers away, you know, Burger King. Now, you know, I don't count myself as the best salesman in the world, but if you allow me to give away free burgers, I'm pretty sure I could build you some long queues outside any any burger bar in town. I really could. So, you know, you, you know that, that, that was where it was leading creativity to highly creative ideas. A lot of very, very brilliant creative firepower applied to the wrong brief, you know, to the shifting product in the short term. And, and that's what's been happening. If you look at it, it's, you know, the latest, mm. the latest digital gizmo used to drive short term effects. Whereas, of course, what I would have been saying for many years was that creativity is really a long term tool. It's a way of changing people's view of your brand, getting it, getting, getting it in their heads in a, in a way that is you know, unstoppable. It takes time and you need to play the long game. Creativity is not an overnight, you know, wham, bam, thank you, ma'am kind of tool. You know, it, but that's the way it was being used. And, and when I stood up and said, look, the crisis in creative effectiveness, the crisis in creative effectiveness is here, but it doesn't have to be here. I also pulled out a sample of cases that hadn't gone down that road and showed that they were pretty much as wonderfully effective as they always had been with a you know, border of magnitude advantage. It's just that they had been totally swamped by this, you know, tidal wave of, of you know, what I call disposable creativity. You know, just, you know, we're going to do... 
We're going to do one one ad or one digit one one piece of digital footage using this side. And we're going to throw it away and move on to the next one. So there's no there's no fluent device, there's no cumulative thinking, there's no momentum built. It's you're constantly chucking it away and starting again. And that's no way to use creativity. It's idiotic. Yeah. So so hence you so, know the, so the one, Herman thing, which was yeah. about commitment to creative yes. ideas for the long term with respect to amount of months, I thought was a great, a great initiative on his part. And I, you know, I was very yeah. enthusiastic to get involved with it. Yeah. No, I I, I, love, I love that. And I I talked to him at length about it and really I think it's a really strong contribution and one actually that I think brand owners in particular will value when you're managing the whole mix seeing how all the parts you know and and grow over the long term so that's really really cool I, I wanted to ask you so do you think is is it a reflection on what we're awarding or is it a reflection on what we're doing? So th- th- this is what I wasn't sure about. So what, what the System One data was showing is that we took we took a sample of every film winner in the US, UK, put it through the database, compared it to historic, and there is no question, can winner can film winners in the US and UK, because I did that on purpose, because that's where we've got the data references, are no more effective. We, we predict, because that's obviously what we're doing, we predict they'll be no more effective than the average. In actual fact, it's slightly below. It's actually dropped slightly below the watermark kind of thing. Now, that could be that that's a reflection on what's happening out there in the market. It could be that can line judges are choosing to award work that's more short-term activist, before uh, sorry, purpose-led in nature. And that looks to be what's happening. Do you, do, so do you think it's what we're awarding that's changing? Or do you think it's what we're actually producing that's changing? Or is it... I think it's a bit of both. I mean, undoubtedly, well, we know. We know that it, that kind of thing has been going on at scale because, you know, we, we can see it in the data. But I do think that the trouble with Can and other creative shows is that they, you know, they can, they can amplify these trends. And I think that's what they have been doing by choosing to award those because they know that they were the kind of, you know, flavour of flavor of marketing at the moment. They have made it worse by celebrating some mm. of those ridiculous short-term initiatives. They have, they, have, they have made it worse. So, you know, my message to them was, look, you know, inadvertently you've been part of the problem, but you guys need to be a big part of the solution here. You've got to lead these, you've got to lead the industry out of this mess by celebrating the proper long-term use of creativity and making sure everyone understands the difference between the two. At the very least, it's had two levels, two sets of creative awards for long-term creativity and short-term creativity. So at least it's a, a kind of didactic situation where people mm. know that there are these two sorts and they're used in different ways. They call on different skills and so on and so forth. So, and I really hope that we're going to be seeing some of that in the years ahead. Otherwise, um, I think creativity will not. I was going to say, because you, you, uh, I think that was the only time I've been to Cannes actually was two years ago when you did that, did that talk. That was two years ago. Th- this year, the data is the worst data we've got from System One point of view. So it sounds like we're not yet changing the tide or, 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 or re, resetting Yes, I'm trying to sound surprised, but I have to say I can't. You know, I mean, these, these things take such a long time. It is a real super tanker because you've got, you know, yeah. you've got agencies and their teams and clients around the world. You all got to bring on board with this, and they've been drinking, you know, the short term and digital Kool Aid now for for more than a decade. So you're not going to turn this around overnight. But I think the real test is is whether the you know the various awards 
juries and awards systems embrace this idea and start to put pressure on it. I mean, all I would say is that it is possible to do this. I mean, I know this from the effectiveness award schemes, particularly the one in Australia, where about three or four years ago, they despaired because they actually had no proper long-term brand-led effectiveness entries in. And they said, look, this has got to stop. This has got to stop. And so they made a very, very visible and conscious effort to say, look, we are are putting in new prizes. We are going to switch the focus to long-term brand building. And over a period of a few years, they have very much turned that around. They're now getting... Uh, a much richer mix of proper long-term brand-led cases, as well as, of course, some of the short-term stuff as well. And they've, you know, they've seen a real, a real switch. You can do it. You just have to be determined and possibly brave. I don't really think it takes a great deal of bravery to do it, but you've just got to, unless, of course, it might mean that um, certain sponsors of your awards might pull out if you don't um, <laughs> but I mean, I don't know. Well, I honestly I, don't know I, I, why they're not doing it because it is so obviously necessary. I think it's so important as well. I agree because because at the end, you know, who pays for can ultimately the client pays based on the success of their campaign. And if we're not delivering long term success, eventually, you know, we're, we're all going to dry up, aren't we? Because we're just not going to have the budgets because it hasn't been successful. So I think that it's in everyone's interest. To, actually, James, to be fair to James, was on the last, we did agree at the end of the podcast, actually, what we need to do is return the long-term lens to how we judge creative awards. And so good, good to get him on site with that. So I think we can we can have a go at that. It's interesting, actually, a little, a little nugget, actually. So when we looked at the System 1 database from 2010 to 2018, we found that CanLine winners were seven times more likely to be five-star, four times more likely to be four-star, and half as likely to get one-star. So really big, big tick. So gold star, well done. The interesting nuance we found then was that Grand Prix winners were almost routinely one-star. So they were almost routinely the activation stunt, you know, the more challenging work, let's say. And then interestingly with this year, it's almost that that thing has filtered all the way down. So bronze bronze winners were where the, the system one successes lay that you know the, the cheetos and mountain dew and a couple of the night bits of work but interestingly when you go up the up the awards the, the, the star rating goes down so it's almost it's almost you know mm. you almost want to be celebrating a bronze because right. <laughs> uh, it means absolutely well done you know and then now we're going to talk about short term but, but of course for the creative people whose careers and livelihoods are often heavily influenced by the kinds of awards they get at these they're going to be led by what picks up the big the big gongs. They're, that's that's the piece of the action they want. Um, you know, it is so it is so important that we send the right signals out through creative awards. Absolutely vital. Yeah. I mean, it's not the only yeah. it's not the only front that this battle needs to to fight, but it's one of the really important ones. And I think you know, I, I just hope it's it, it, it is huge. Hmm. It's huge. And 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 it, this bridges me to my next topic of conversation actually because I think more you know we always say now more than ever but literally now more than ever we've just been through one of the biggest economic upsets probably any of us have ever experienced and challenges and budgets being cut and having to pivot and you know you know depending on which category and it's either feast or famine isn't it the last year it's had to rip everything up right so if ever there was a time to be going let's recenter on looking long term you know and, and putting the credibility back into marketing and putting the cmo back in the back in control now is it and there was a report from mc sarchi clear um actually 
looking at the role influence of the CMO year on year. And it was really fascinating because actually what the crisis did helpfully was actually propel the CMO back into the center of influence. Because of course, when things, my experience anyway has been, when everything's going well, you know, everyone takes the acknowledgement. And when things are going badly, the CMO's the one left trying to figure out what you do. <laughs> so, which is, you know, it's led to a couple of me, a couple of times me being fired. But um, the good thing is the crisis in a way is good because it forces you to go, do I understand my customer? Do I really understand my strategy? Is it really right? Am I targeting the right people and doing the right things? So I just think, you know, to, to coin the old phrase now more than ever, now is the time we've got to get that belief back into long-term brand building and, and demonstrate the value marketing has on the business. And, and ultimately as well, how marketing and advertising fuels the economic growth of the country as well. I mean, that's the other way of looking at it, isn't it? Is that, that there are jobs. There are jobs that will be created through making decisions that focus on long-term success over short-term as well. Sorry, a bit of a speech. Yeah, no, absolutely right. No, <laughs> for, for us, yeah. but... I agree, yeah. and I applaud that. I mean, I think that's that's totally, totally true. And hopefully businesses will have learned in this recession, as they often have in the past, that, you know, mm. going short, going dark, not a smart thing to do in a recession. I mean, it well, seems... This is, this is what I wanted to... Yeah. yeah. It kind of seems, it feels that it's probably the right thing to do, but, you know, there's so much evidence in learning now that says, you, you know, it's just not right. Like so many things in marketing, mm. what seems right is, in fact, wrong. You know, there's a lot of counterintuitivity in, um, uh, in marketing. There is. And this is one of the great... And, and I, I think... This is such an important conversation as well, because I remember, I mean, boy, go back 18 months when we were all hit with the pandemic and no one knew, you know, which way was up. And the first reaction, of course, everybody had was cut, 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 put things, freeze things, cut them, uh, cancel whatever you plan to do until we know what's going on. And I thought your intervention, I think, with the B&B Institute, wasn't it, LinkedIn, was really helpful to gather the evidence for what happens in recessions. And actually, there's a really powerful argument for the benefit of continuing advertising through us. Now, of course, the caveat that I feel I have to make, and I know you do make, is, look, if you're in an industry like airlines where everything's shut oh, down, totally. yeah. you know, yeah. that, that, yeah. of course, we, we, un yeah. we understand yeah. that. But where you're, in a, where you're in a category that there's some discretion, over over uh, over spend and investment there's a really powerful case isn't there to continue yeah. advertising yeah. i mean the unforgivable voice of cutting in all of this was coca-cola i mean you know they you know they said well if we're not going to get the normal sales this quarter why 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 would we why would we carry on advertising i mean them of all people should have known better than that i mean i was i mean it was just bad leadership of the marketing world. Procter & Gamble, who are the past masters of this, um, I mean, they know how to handle recession. They've done it many, many times. And we all know that if you, if, you, if you can find the resources, and of course there were businesses in this particular downturn that were so hammered, obviously that wasn't a, a luxury, but if you've still got the resources, and of course you know, investors understand nobody's going to expect you to make your numbers in the middle of a global pandemic, for heaven's sake. <laughs> so you've got carte blanche to take some brave decisions. And of course, the smart decision was to keep on spending, to try and hold your budgets for two reasons. One, because whilst others were cutting theirs around you, your share of voice would have risen. So you would have, with no extra money on the table, achieved greater ESOV, which would have had bigger impacts on your on your on your future growth but also 
because media tends to get cheap during these downturns. You've got this, you know, you're getting a double double whammy, you know, greater share of voice thanks to your spend, but also Brilliant. thanks to cheaper media. And of course, now we're seeing as, as markets come out of recession, we're seeing, you know, the latest IT, ITV figures and some boom spend yeah. and all that. But they've slightly, yeah. slightly missed the boat on this. I'm pretty damn sure. I, don't, I haven't seen their numbers, I'm guessing, but I'm pretty damn sure that ITV's rate card has hardened than over what it was a year ago. But, but we will see. I mean, it's a missed opportunity. No, it has, it has. It's, it's this mistaken idea that if I'm not going to get the sales this quarter, then there is no sense in me advertising this quarter. That yeah. is the short-term yeah. mentality yeah. in a nutshell. And its stupidity yeah. is revealed in a nutshell. Because, of course, the investments I make in brand building this quarter are going to play out for the next year or two. We know that. The data's there. Yeah. It's clear. Yeah. The ITV thing is fascinating because um, they were explaining to me how the pricing works, and, and, and it is a it is it is a very simple economic formula based on demand and supply. And of course, what happened a year ago was viewing went up, and That's and true. and the number of yeah. chat. Yeah. So what you, what you had was you had this perfect storm of of advertisers pulling out and inventory going up uh, because people were watching more programs. I mean, if, yeah, if, ever, yeah, yeah. if ever any savvy marketer was looking at a, a golden opportunity, it was then. Yeah. And, you know, I always did my, my, my bit to try and persuade people to see it for what it was, which was a, you know, a fantastic opportunity for some relatively cheap, big audience brand building. And, you know, and some mm. people did, did do it. Some people did take mm. advantage. I fear they did. I mean, ITV... Were- ITV were describing it as a a, a, a lower price, a price never seen in a generation in terms of, and we were less than half. I don't know what the exact prices wow. were, but, but wow. certainly the, well, the, sound, the sound bites coming up. And and also the, the other thing that they they tried to do to respond was drop their advanced booking deadlines right down. Yeah. So whereas before you might have had to yeah. commit 12 weeks out, there was no commitment required. So you could literally turn it on the week later. So as you say, the savvy marketer had an amazing ESOV opportunity at a, a price never seen before, which you could then turn on tomorrow. And the other thing was really interesting as well, I, I, I thought was um, we were tracking the effectiveness of advertising. And the other the other people thing people panicked about a year ago was, can I, what do I say? If I advertise, what do I say in this kind of new world? And actually we found, you know, if anything, the right kind of advertising did even better post pandemic because of course we know what you know what had worked before worked even more what didn't work worked even less but but certainly you know you wouldn't go far wrong taking an advert that was already proven to work and so you didn't necessarily have to produce new things what you needed to avoid was following the crowds and doing yes well this is of course in in these times so many took advantage of this media bonanza just to put out these really bleak you know, kind of yeah. what I call tumbleweed ads. So just, you know, just, mm. and I mean, you'll, you'll be interested to know, this is again another alignment of effectiveness data with your own analysis, Orlando's analysis. I've been doing some work with the Canadian FEs and we'll be publishing um, next month Ooh. some work that mm. looks at the effectiveness of COVID specials versus those advertisers that stuck to their guns during the recession. Without giving the game away, you won't be surprised by the findings. No, not at all. There's a lovely little stat where, as you know, we test every Christmas ad. Is There's around 100 to 110 unique Christmas ads created that get to a certain level of media spend that, that kind of hits our system. And we've got a lovely back data now. Anyway, last year, we looked at, we, we cut the data by 
every advertiser that made any reference to COVID at all, and, and it could be implicit. So, for example, if there was someone on a Zoom call or some conversation that said, oh, we're not going to see Nan this year or anything like that, right? And then we compared that to where advertisers just did traditional or just did unrelated to COVID Christmas advertising. Every advertiser, every single one that had any reference to COVID, whatever, their score went down versus their equivalent Christmas ad from a year ago, even though the campaigns are different. But no advertiser did any reference to COVID and improved their score versus the prior year. Mm. And if you take the group, that the net net of the ones that didn't, the average score was up. And there was a whole star point difference between the average of the COVID references versus the average of the kind of normal Christmas ads. Yeah. And, and the weird thing was actually is that people actually wanted a normal Christmas. It was like, don't remind yeah, me. No, no. You know, I, what I want, what, what I want is familiarity. I, I want, I want I, the, the, in a year the where things change, I want the familiar. familiarity. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, that's it, that's we it. shouldn't be surprised yeah. by this, but at least we know when the next pandemic mm. comes and, you know, there will be yes, one. Sir, yeah. At least we should now have, you know, some 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 kind of set of rules, some understanding of how to play it, and a playbook for it. You know? Well, well, this is this is one of the things that I guess always you know frustrates me to some extent as, as a client before and now when I you know advise companies on what to do is I just wish people would go look back at their old advertising and test it and see what has worked and look at the assets that are within their gift. The, the key associations, the fluent devices, you know, all those things that the brand has already got. Because our obsession with making the new thing, I just find crazy. You know, when you can go back and see what has already worked. And, mm. and of course, we get bored. We, we, I'm speaking on behalf of the ad agency, but we get bored of, of what we produce so much quicker than, than, you know, the customer does. And we've got some lovely examples, Coke in particular, Audi, Kevin, the Carrot, Yorkshire Tea, there's a few others where what we see is good advertising as it becomes more familiar gets better. Yes. But our, obses yeah. our obsession with recreating things yeah. is, it's a very expensive one. Yeah. Uh, but, but of course, you know, coming back to our earlier point, the creative awards will tend to follow the let's throw it away and start again. So, you know, we did, you know, Can and others used, used to, to reward long-running creative campaigns for their for their latest ad but that seems to have kind of gone out of fashion with creative awards mm. so what you want is the is the you know the next completely new idea which i think is again a big mistake big mistake because we know fluent this devices work for all those very sensible reasons that it's about we're looking to build on what we've already achieved not throw it away and start again yeah, these, these... Totally, t t totally. I mean, a lot, a lot of the best ads. I mean, a good example actually is Ambrosia. <laughs> Interestingly enough, so one of the, the the most successful brand new ad of last year was Ambrosia with a, with a character called Molly, lovely little um, new fluent device. But that got a five point six star. It was in our top ten ads of last year. But again, it's a familiar brand using familiar ad, introducing a new character in this case, but but done exceptionally well. So yeah, there's, there's definitely we, we almost need an award for. Who hasn't changed? Absolutely, <laughs> you know, and and continue. Yeah. You know, yeah, the, the, the most successful let's company. Let's start celebrating. You know, and I think one of the most valuable creative skills, and unfortunately, most undervalued creative skills, is this ability to find ways to breathe new life into long. In, in many instances old campaign ideas because that's where the real value lies you know finding ways to innovate 
on a consistent core theme, a fluent device, for, for want of a better word, mm. but breathing new life into it. Because then, you know, you build on what you've done before, but you also get all the benefits of innovation and novelty and surprise, which are, which are so valuable. Completely. But, you know, I think yeah. they're, they're kind of out of fashion, that kind of creative skill. But yet I think it is the, the most valuable creative skill out there. And uh, we need to mm. start. 100% agree. And, and, and I think I need to start asking McCann Erickson for, for some commissions. I keep on mentioning it, but, but Audi, Kevin, the carrot, I love because it, you know, it's four or five years old now, but they've taken the idea and every year they do it better. And, and we've seen in our testing over at Christmas, it's gone up from 3.8 star to 5.8. It was the best, most effective ad of last year, but it's because they stuck with the general idea, but each year they've improved the story, they've given it a twist and they've made it relevant and so on. But, uh, it's actually wonderful. But also to come back to Orlando's work, I mean, it is a deeply human piece of advertising. You know, it, mm. it plays with our, our, you know, our humanity in many ways. It's proper storytelling. It's, 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 it's proper emotional kind of engagement and, and ticks many of Orlando's boxes, I think. But again, it 100% you know, does, it's yeah. just... It's in so many ways not fashionable advertising, but it down well all. Hundred percent. They'll be pleased to hear the endorsement for sure. Um, actually, have you? Did you see the recent Ehrenberg Bass? What happens when you stop advertising? Work. I did. Yeah, fantastic. It's just come fantastic. out. Yeah. Isn't it great? Yeah. I know. Yeah. I, it's that, brilliant. But in fact, I've got Nicole Hartner who worked on it coming on the podcast next week, which uh, which would be wonderful. So I think it just builds further empirical evidence to support what you've been saying about the importance of, but I mean, it was quite stark actually the, I mean, it made some of the similar points actually to your um, ESCD conversation earlier that bigger brands survive better than smaller brands. Brands that were already in growth survived better than brands that were already in decline. So it kind of accelerated, it exaggerated the differences, both in terms of scale and momentum. But the, I'm going to misquote it now, so I'll, I'll check with Nicole next week, but it was something like between 15 and 25% decline in the following 12 months after after going dark. It, it, it's, it's stark numbers. And of course, the trouble is that sometimes brands just can't recover from that. You know, if you let it go too far, yeah. too fast, you know, it's, it's it becomes a death spiral. At least it's very difficult to pull out of that kind of uh, situation. So you know, best never to I think it. you're right. And I think you're right. The, the data set they were looking at was quite long as well. And I think you saw the you saw the gradual demise mm. of those that did suffer from the from the lack of investment. So you do, it does take many years to recover the situation if you've if, if you've done that. So mm. I think that's where the time frame is so important because if you make the decision on the quarter or the half year of the year, you're just not you're not taking into account years two to five or whatever that happens after that. And if you could see that, you might make a very different decision. Yeah. But but also, I mean, the other factor that you need to bear in mind is that you know people say, well, we'll make we'll make it good when the times are better, but it's going to cost you a ton more money. And yes, not only, as we know, not only yeah. you know if you if you've got damage to put right, which was needless, but the mending of that damage is going to be massively more expensive than it would have been if you just held your nerve in the first place. I mean, there is a real, real double penalty to panicking in, in these um, recessionary times. So what's the one thing that we should be talking about within marketing that you don't think we're talking about? It, it's, I mean, we are beginning to talk about it because of the work that um, 
Karen Nelson Field has done on this. I mean, I think it's the whole issue of viewability, which of course is related to many of the things we've been talking about. And it has huge implications for things like ESOV, for instance. Now, I haven't published this yet, but I've been looking at how strong the relationship is between growth and ESOV over the last 10, 15 years or so. And it's it's not because ESOV as a theoretical metric, is no longer valid. It's because we cannot measure it properly. And because the cost of media, you know, the the normal way we measure share of voice is through the amount of money we put on the table. In the old days, the market kind of sorted that out. So a pound spent on TV, you know, was accounted for versus a pound spent on, say, radio. It would buy you a lot more radio, but inherently each impact was less effective. So that Mm. kind of market-based measurement for share of voice worked brilliantly. It worked brilliantly until relatively recently but what we've seen in recent times really thanks to the kind of digital world gardens is that there's tons of money going into media where we don't we have no idea what the show voice emerges from as we can't measure it and the the actual value of that media is in is never being properly challenged and it is inflated we know it's even inflated mm. value because of the work that karen nelson field has, has done where she has looked at you know, to attention levels to um, ads done particularly on social media um, and shown that they are really, really low and they're not fully accounted for in any kind of kind of cost differences that you might get. So what we're seeing is a breakdown, a progressive breakdown of the relationship between share of voice, ESOV and, and growth. So everything that we were talking about earlier on, which mm. is this wonderful, robust, rigorous model that links those two, is breaking down because our metrics are breaking down and because we have a broken marketplace for media at the moment. Um, and That's again, really, this is a really, really, really serious yeah. issue. I think this is the next big issue that we have to solve. You know, and I'm you know a big supporter of, of the work that Karen Nelson Field and other companies have been doing on viewability mm. because I think it's the only way out of this. We're not, I don't think we're going to persuade the social media um, big companies to open themselves up to proper scrutiny on this so we can really, really be clear, you know, what we get and what we, what we pay for it compared to competitors. We're going to have to switch from measuring share of voice to share of attention, if you like. That needs to be yes. the new metric. So I think this is a, this should be the next big topic of conversation. And I will certainly be doing my most utmost to encourage it. Because Well, we, we should connect up on this. You might have seen this already, but I know Alana did some work with Lumen and looked at different channels and the minutes of attention created for a one-star ad versus a five-star ad. It tells, it tells you what you have told me, which is the amounts of attention on yeah. TV were greater than YouTube, were greater than Facebook, greater than Twitter, et cetera, et cetera, quite dramatically so. Then when he over- looked at a five-star ad versus a one-star ad, it was three to four times the attention on top for the five-star yeah. ad versus the one-star ad. So, the, the in, in fact, I think it, I might be right in saying that 
you're better. You'd almost be better off doing a one-star ad on TV than a five-star ad on Facebook. It was that extreme. Kind of, extreme you know, exactly. But the, I mean, the, 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 the extremities of, were incredible. The beauty of the metric is it would account for two things, not just one. One would be our scale of investment, and the second would be the quality of our creative, and that would make it a, a uniquely valuable metric for the future. So, you know, I, I think it, it's got to come. It's got to come, and I hope. I hope it. Does. Well, I'll, I'll 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 check in with Karen and maybe get her on and we'll, no, we'll I, talk I about that because that that would be. A, that'd be a brilliant conversation to have and i think that's a, a great suggestion listen peter thank you so much for coming on the show it's been uh, it's been brilliant to have you and uh, yeah really enjoyed the conversation my pleasure my pleasure Okay, so that was my conversation with the godfather himself, Peter Field. Thank you so much for listening. I really, really appreciate it. And just to say, I would love it if you were able to give me a review. So if you get a a little moment, please do head over to Apple Podcasts, leave me a review, leave me some comments. And if you'd like to follow me on social media, you can find me on LinkedIn, where I'm under my normal name, uh, John Evans. And you can also follow me on Twitter at UncensoredCMO. I would love a like and a follow if you can spare it but thanks again plenty more episodes to come so stay tuned for more